Welcome to the Good Bottle Podcast. Join Chris and Drew, two self-proclaimed booze pundits with a lifetime of industry experience as they walk you through the alcohol business and how today's headlines affect the industry. Each week, you guys will be joined by a special guest that will help them break down these stories and offer their own expertise to the podcast. So, pour yourself a glass of your favorite drink and sit back. This is the Good Bottle Podcast. Welcome to the Good Bottle Podcast. I am your host, Chris Sinclair, joined by my co-host, Mr. Drew Garrison. What's up, buddy? How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing good. I thought we were at the same energy earlier. I was clearly wrong, so now I'm going to try to pick it up a little bit. Um, I feel like I should go grab a coffee. And I got mine right here. Yeah, I mean, here I was thinking that taking a pre-workout was going to be enough, and um, clearly not. Not not Goddamn at all. Amateur. But, um, I know. I'm... I know, but uh, hey, man, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, we have very, very, very awesome show lined up today. An amazing guest that I've been looking for to this conversation for a long time. Um, we're going to be talking about some fun stuff and a story that I think is just absolutely ludicrous and I don't understand it, but I'm looking forward to talking to you guys about it. And uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm excited. You know, we're getting back into the rhythm of, of recording again. And, uh, even though it didn't seem like a big break, it was a big break. Uh, we had an, an amazing guest on last week's episode with Ryan Metcalf. So hopefully if you guys haven't listened to that one, go check it out. He's doing some really cool stuff in Fresno, um, again, at a bar and in a place that you don't have to do fancy things and he's doing it and it's still great. So, but, uh, but today's guest, it. he's killing it. Yeah. He's, he's, I was, uh, I try not to listen to the episodes because, you know, I'm not a psychopath, um, and the sound of my own voice is like, you know, so cringeworthy. But uh, I was listening to the things that he was talking about. And, uh, you know, like we told him after the episode, we we definitely need to make him take like three shots before. So he's not as rigid the next time. And then go and then go from there. So and I'm back and I'm back. So I don't know. I don't know what's going on with our Internet, but, you know, we're going to see we're going to see what happens today on today's episode. So with that being the case, our guest today is, um, like I said, someone that I've been really looking forward to talking to. She is, for lack of a better phrase, just a maverick in the rum industry and is doing some amazing stuff in, uh, in the Rockies, you know, definitely a place that would, you thought would be rockier, but she's, she's doing it out in, out in Colorado. Um, she started... Montana Distillery in 2008, which we believe is the first woman-owned distillery in the United States. Our guest today is just one of my favorite people, even though we've only had limited interactions because she's just that amazing. Karen Hoskin, welcome to the Good Bottle Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Are you sipping on anything this morning or... Uh, you know, why don't you tell why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and um, if you are drinking at ten in the morning in the Rockies? I know, like sometimes that elevation can get you. Uh, how are you? Welcome. Thank you. I'm great. It's a perfectly beautiful day at nine thousand feet in the mountains, so that always makes me happy. Um, I am actually. Um, sipping on yuzu and uh, topo chico, which is not the most exciting thing, probably. Um, but yeah, it's it's um, it's a delicious. We'll call it a mocktail for the morning. Oh, I love it! Yeah. I love it. So, um, the last time that we really got to hang out was in Miami this year. 
um we survived a mini hurricane together um <laughs> it was still to this day the most like one of the more terrifying things that i've witnessed because i was just so caught off guard um give me earthquakes all day that's that's mm-hmm. all i'm gonna say to that uh but during during that week you did a panel um you know just about women in rum and but it was really more focused on just rum production and everything that you guys are doing because you know you've been in this industry for 14 years and you've really been um uh you know breaking down a lot of walls and stuff but you're at the point now where you're kind of like I just I don't want to talk about the fact that I'm a woman doing this I just want to talk about you know making good rum and taking rum and you know and, and obviously we always see like the marketing speak of like this is a premium product and da da this and da da that but you've taken it so much further because it's not just about the rum production but it's the sustainability you know and it's also you know being as zero impact on the world as you possibly can while producing something that's really fun so can you talk a little bit about what what you think sets montana apart from other rums that are out there or just, or just distilleries out there and, or what you're doing that you think is different and unique that people need to know about. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think what was so unique about that um, panel in Miami at the Miami rum Congress was that, you know, I had been saying for quite some time, like I'm, I'm tired of being on the panels of, of women, but this panel was all women, but they were like, running companies, running significant rum distilleries in the world, which that's changed since I started. I really only started, I mean, in the scope of rum, I started only 14 years ago. So um, there was not a lot going on with women when I started. And to see these women who are like master blenders, master distillers, master, um, you know, like really... CEOs and taking over, um, that has been so exciting for me and such a big, um, a big element of progress that I can say, hopefully the fact that I was willing to talk about it for the last 14 years has helped to stimulate the conversation and maybe inspire a little bit and inspire some other people that they could, that they could get into this business and really, um, take some leadership. So I feel really psyched about what I'm seeing. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of like my my whole scene, rum has been my obsession for um, literally 34 years now. Like it is what I love. It's what I drink. Um, it's what people, you know, expect from me in pretty much everything I do. So everywhere I go, every, every hat I wear um, is somehow affiliated with rum. And um, it's just been so much fun and like getting to meet people like you who not only um, help me to understand the, the marketplace, you know, what customers want, what they're looking for, but you guys, you specifically and a number of other people I get to work with are really um, helping people to think of rum differently. Think of rum as a, um, a premium spirit, a sipping spirit, not just the, um, you know, the thing you have on the beach when you're on spring break, as we may get to talk about today. <laughs> yeah. <And> yep. 
Um, but yeah, that that hurricane little cell in Miami was one of the craziest things. I thought I was going to watch someone get blown off that roof and we all survived. So and then like an hour later, we were set up and, and working again, which was also kind of amazing. <laughs> I think it was like this great testament just to this industry in general, where it was kind of like you had this scenario that was just batshit insane, where bottles were breaking the tent was trying to fly away. And then like an hour later, I was like, well, just don't worry about it. Like nobody talk about it. We're fine now. We're going to, we're going to go and drink. Um, Well, and, and thank you for, for saying that about, you know, my contributions to, to this industry. I think um, it's, it's something that Chris and I both really, really care about. And it's something that I really believe, you know, rum has, is a strong pillar of our friendship. Like we really kind of built a lot of things off of that, which is insane. It really says a lot. It does say a lot, um, you know, and and I think too, and and I've always been curious about this because my first exposure to your rum, oddly enough, came from the UK. Mm-hmm. I had people talking about it, or saw people talking about it in England, and it was just like I just kept seeing it pop up via social medias and people that that I feel you know that were you know influencers and ambassadors and things like that and then when i realized i was like i was like this is made in colorado like what wait a minute what are we talking about here right um and then come to find out that it's in fact not only it's it's made in colorado but then it's distributed in california and i don't i at the time like i wasn't seeing it and i just was like what the hell you know um and it was with one of our major distributors and fortunately because uh, it was with that, like we were actually able to do a rum barrel and our first rum barrel that we did through our whiskey society was, was yours, uh, which was super fun. It, you know, was the first one in what we call our cane series. And, uh, and it was, it was so great because it's one of those things that, especially when you're in a whiskey group and you can hand somebody a rum and be like, try this and just watch their brain break because of what they think rum is going to be. And then what it eventually ends up being was, was really fun. But I mean, what is what is that like as a brand owner to kind of be like, hey, people across oceans really give a shit about this. And I feel like my neighbors don't. What the hell? I, I mean, was that was that the sentiment or am I reading too much into this? I mean, what what was that like? No, that's for sure. That's very real. It's funny because I get this question a lot. People come up, pop up on my social feeds and they're like, it's easier to get Montagna rum in London than it is to get it in, you know, uh, New York city or, or Los Angeles. And why is that the case? And why are you not putting us first? And I just feel really strongly that I let the rum go where the demand is, where people are pulling on it. Mm. And, um, and it just happens. I mean, we know this, that, that the UK and Europe are the largest consumers of premium rum in the world. So they're ahead of us in understanding it. So it would have been crazy for me to think, well, I should fix the problem here in the US first. Instead, I just kind of let it flow to Europe and to the UK. And right now, outside of Colorado, uh, you know, the UK is my biggest market. Um, And that's also partly because of believers, you know, so you get people in the business who are believers and they spread the word and then you get these little expanding nodes, you know, or pods of, of Montagna where it's like, okay, here it is in Sacramento because you did a barrel program and people got a chance to really taste, you know, an overproof, which we don't actually have in the market or whatever it happens to be. 
And um, so we have these little nodes around the country. One of them is in North Dakota, like Fargo, North Dakota. They order rum from our warehouse in New Jersey every month. And it's just awesome. So I just have really tried, I guess I've worked it backwards. Most companies invest a lot of money and a lot of time and cultivate five markets at a go. And, you know, they might spend two or $3 million to open a market like Texas. And I have worked it much more organically, partly because I have to, I'm a female owned company. We're always historically underfunded. We have less money to work with. It's just reality. Um, So I've had to do it my way. Um, But it's, it's fun to watch it churn more organically because then people actually do, um, they stick with it. It's not like, oh, I saw this on special somewhere and then they never buy it again. They become real committed partners to the products, which I appreciate so much. Building yeah, that def- community is really, uh, is really a cornerstone then to the business. Yeah. Well, it's like you're, it's like you're an indie rock band, you know, like you're, you're, you're developing those, those relationships and, and hopefully continue to grow. Um, one of the things that, that you pointed out, uh, just kind of in like our, our quote unquote pre-interview, uh, was, you know, bringing America rum back and introducing to the concept of mountain rum, which, you know, you like it's like Colombia and Guatemala are places that it's kind of known for. What do you think? those factors end up being being at the elevation that you're at on the final product that that you guys are releasing? You know, it's so many different factors. So it starts with the water that we use for everything. So 60% of what's in our 80 proof bottles and, you know, 80% of our process from fermentation to bottling is water. And a lot of my colleagues who distill either in the Caribbean or even in urban centers in the U.S. or um, other parts of the world, they struggle with the quality of their water so much. They have to reverse osmosis filter it. They have to, you know, deal with heavy metals. Um, When you filter water, you take out a lot of what's delicious and good about it. And people in Scotland would say that's a huge compromise to the final spirit. So I agree. I pull my water from 350 feet under my distillery. It's in an aquifer. Um, It has no heavy metals. It's got lovely mineralization um, that I don't want to filter out. And so that's one thing. So water. The second thing would be, um, you know, the way in which we distill happens, it all happens at lower temperatures so our stills, the, the boiling point is much lower of the alcohol here at 9,000 feet, which means that we spend less time kind of mixing up the alcohols in the still. And when you mix up the alcohols less, then you have to separate them less. Um, so that's the whole art of distilling is the separation of the good alcohols and the not good alcohols. Um, so we do that. And then... Um, in aging, you know, this was what I learned in Guatemala and whether or not people like Ron Zacapa, I don't really care um, because I learned a lot from Lorena Vasquez and how rum is made in, in Guatemala and from, from uh, you know, very different ingredients from what's happening in most of the, um, not different ingredients, obviously sugarcane, but different derivative ingredients of sugarcane and ways in which it's handled. And I just learned so much about how they do that for a mountain 
environment. They take their barrels up to 7,000 feet in the mountains in Guatemala. And I didn't even know they had 7,000 foot mountains in Guatemala when I first was learning about this. And I was like, why do you do that? Why would you take that time and energy? And um, I said, because it's, it's amazing how it keeps the, the rum moving in and out of the pores of the barrel on a regular basis, um, giving more of the liquid access to the wood, which we know is the magic of aging to begin with. Um, so for me, my there's just constant kinetic action in my barrels as my temperatures fluctuate from day to night. Um, that exposes more of it to the oak. That I think creates a, you know, if I'm putting out a two-year-old rum uh, that's being routinely compared to and competing against rums that are eight, nine, 10 years of age. Um, it's just, it's amazing how, how comparable they are with only two years of age at 9,000 feet. So it, you know, a lot of what we talk about with the Caribbean is, uh, you know, there's so much interaction between liquid and wood because of the temperature swings, right? That's also pretty common throughout the Midwest when it comes to a lot of bourbon production. And then a place like Scotland, you know, where their angel share is one to 2%, you know, that's why you tend to see bigger age statements there because it really needs more time. Um, what's what's the angel share in Colorado? What does that look like? Do you guys are you do you have you done that research to see kind of yeah. what it is? For sure. I mean, I think we're it depends obviously on on how long we we leave it in the barrel. So if it's over a one year of age, we're looking at really only about 3%, 4% loss. Um, once we get into our rums that are aged three and four years, we're getting up to 11% loss. Um, wow. But one thing that's really interesting, and, and I've only just started to confirm and understand this, is that there's angel share that is loss of alcohol, and there's angel share that is loss of water. So the more humid your climate is and the hotter your climate is, the more your angel share is is leaving is alcohol leaving the barrel um, because the alcohol is expanding and pushing out. Um, when you're at my elevations, which are cooler and drier, you're you have a lot more loss of the water that was in there. And so, um, so I'm finding that I'm just ending up at the end of that three year age cycle with more concentration of alcohol. So I have less liquid. High, a little bit of a higher concentration of alcohol. And so when you run the numbers out on that, it might've been a, you know, an, a, let's say an 11% loss of liquid, but it's not actually as much loss of the alcohol. So then my proofing process just becomes a little bit different. If that makes sense. It, does that, um, when you're, does that change how you're putting the booze into the barrel? Um, or, or is it really just defining your, like you said, your proofing process? Um, I mean, both. Um, so we're putting rum into the barrel um, at pretty high proof. Not all distilleries barrel at the proof that we do. I'm, I'm putting it into the barrel at about 74% alcohol, which, you know, a lot of my yeah. colleagues, it's more like 50, uh, 60. Um, and so that creates a whole category of outcomes that we probably might not have time to talk about. Um, but when it comes to angel share, um, you know, I just think the, the way I'm aging matters. So I have some rums that I switch from, um, American Oak bourbon for number four char into a, um, 
a French oak export cask that, you know, those, the, the loss is different. So it depends on how long it's spent in that cask. And it's a fairly complicated spreadsheet that, you know, also involves cost of goods and, and, you know, periods of time and things like that. But in general, I would say yes to, to your question, both. It, it affects how we proof and it also affects, it's, it is affected by which skew it is, how long it's aging, what kind of barrel it's aging in. Now, you know, you obviously you have the influence of, you know, of Guatemala and for the record, I'm, I'm pro Ron Zacapa. I think it's, I think it's a great product to transition people into the rum world, you know, because (laughs) there is even, you know, with the dosage and stuff, but there, there's a level of elegance that Zacapa has that I think helps people move on from the mindset of I'm a pirate, I'm drinking this on a beach to you can sip this, you know? And I think it's a really great transitional run for that. So I just want to be on uh, record. Drew as- quickly go back and explain to our listeners what dosage is. So that is when you're adding sugar post distillation to, to your rum. You see that a lot throughout the rum world. Um, uh, well, you see it in the actually, wine world you too, see it, right? Like you yeah, see you it in see champagne, it, I mean, you see it. Yep. Yeah. It's everywhere. everywhere. It, it is everywhere. Um, so it's, you know, for your rum care, like you guys are not doing that. Like you're just letting, letting things come through. There's no added sugar or anything like that. It's like, no, we're, we're pulling our flavors from our base material and from the barrels that we're using. Um, so to, to bring it all back, cause like I, I told you earlier, we're just gonna go on tangents. Um, it's uh, you have, you have this influence of Guatemala, right? But now you're at a point, you know, you're 14 years in, you're doing different things. Like, you know, you had mentioned uh, the French oak, you know, you're working with Cabernet barrels, you're working with port barrels, you're working with rye whiskey barrels. Um, Where, I mean, where are you pulling inspiration from at this point? I mean, you know, unfortunately, and you kind of touched on a little bit, like sometimes this business is just very unromantic, right? Like looking at spreadsheets and looking at what's available to you. It's just kind of like a lot of people are like, oh, it must be so cool to plug. It's like actually a lot of times you're just looking at spreadsheets. I know I've talked to Oliver Chilton um, from Elixir Distillers about that when he's picking barrels. He's like, yeah, I just kind of go down a list and it's really not as sexy as people think. But um, but, you know, of course, the enthusiasts don't want to hear that. Right. That it's also a business. Um but, uh, but at this point, you know, as you continue to grow and you, you know, this, this brand does become bigger, like where, where do you see your influences coming from? Or is it just all personal experience? What, what's it been like, you know, at this point in the, in the journey? Well, it always goes back to, um, my original mentor friend, um, really strong influence who was Jake Norris. Um, he started at Stranahan's and then he moved on to Law's Whiskey House now he's a very well-loved uh, whiskey consultant all over the world. He goes to Japan and he goes, you know, he goes everywhere. But Jake, I don't know if you guys have ever had it, but he was the um, the brains behind something called Snowflake, uh, which was a whiskey that Stranahan's made that you could only get at their tasting room. There would be lines down the road uh, when they would do the periodic releases of Snowflake. And it was aged in a Cabernet Franc French oak barrel um, after its sort of required American oak stage. And I'm, you know, admittedly not much of a whiskey girl that, you know, I I love rum. I've always loved rum. Um, But 
that snowflake just from the first time I ever tasted it completely blew my mind. And I went back to the original Stranahan's and I was like, this is not even the same thing. This is not the same <laughs> world. And so that was the beginning of opening my eyes to, um, you know, the fact that I could make a spirit in one way on the stills and then I could age it in a totally you know, different way. And, and I could make these incredibly different rums just by the, the barrel selections that I was making. Um, because it's pretty hard for me to make five different types of, of liquid, um, off the still, you know, that's, I'm a small producer. I don't have a ton of staff. I don't have six different stills. Um, so that was not something I could influence as much as I would have maybe liked to, um, but then the, um, you know, working with the, the finishing barrels, um, sorry, I have a background noise. Um, okay. that changed the game for me. So, um, I'm going to hold on one sec. Is that okay? If I asked him to shut it off? Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's okay. Sorry. No, no, no. Drop the hammer. I think there's so many fun rums that Montana is currently putting out and, we're going to have to make sure that you have all of them at the shop moving forward because there still isn't a lot of places to get them, you know, easily, which is, yeah, always, it's true. Is uh, who, uh, who is Montana being distributed through in California? I believe it's RNDC. Yeah. Republic it's national. R- we have a R-N-D-C. really good, really good partnership with them in a lot of different States. They were my first, they were the first distributor that said yes when I walked into their office with these, you know, huge floor to ceiling doors, like 20 foot doors, you know, into the corner office with the president of the company. And I was terrified. <laughs> this was 12 years ago. And they took a chance on me. And uh, here we are 12 years later with, you know, a really established, beautiful relationship. And it's been Just, great. And, you know, and crushing in North Dakota. I mean, all like the, <laughs> the, the main goal of every major distributor, you know, just to capture that market. Uh, I sell more rum in North Dakota than I do in in New York, the state of New York. That's just so strangest thing. Wild, yeah. wild to me. Um, okay, so you're, you know, you're, you were talking about not having, you know, kind of the flexibility to go nuts with different experiments and things like that. But, you know, obviously through the process, there's been a lot of hits and you've had, you know, there's just all the medals that, you know, you can, that you can get all the awards that you can get. What are some of the misses? Like what have, has, has it happened where you're just kind of like, you taste it and you're kind of like, Oh no, this didn't work. Like, has that <laughs> happened or. Luckily when it's happened, it's happened in these sort of microscopic realities. So um, when we bring on a new distiller, um, you know, cause I, I'm now 14 years in, I travel a lot. I don't, I cannot sit at a still and pay attention the way that I could maybe in 2009 or 10. Right. Um, and so my hands don't touch every bottle that we bottle, et cetera. Um, so when I, um, or in the early days, I would just have to assess, like, does this person get it? Do, do they understand what, what this rum tastes like when it tastes good? And there were a couple times when the answer was just no. And so here you are in the mountains of Colorado, in a ski town with, you know, shortages of employee, employees and shortages of housing and the things that we deal with in these resort communities. 
Um, and I'm like, well, I need you to distill. And so I'm suddenly tasting every single set of transitions, tasting all the cuts that are being made, making all the decisions of what goes in the barrel and what gets redistilled and what gets discarded. Um, and so luckily I was able to catch those potential. If I had just been really hands-off, um, we, we would have discovered that problem at bottling time more right. than a year, two, three, four years later. And that would have been horrific. But for whatever reason, and my husband teases me all the time, I just have like this ginormous uh, nose, not literally, but like it smells everything. And I can, I can walk into the, the distillery and I can smell, you know, that whether we're in heads or hearts or tails based on what's in the room. And um, I can smell transitions and know if there's heads or tails in the transitions from the batch, you know, the heads to the hearts and the hearts to the tails. And so I, um, I got lucky with that. And I think that's part of why Montagna rum is, is well loved is because it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't necessarily even matter where your sugar cane comes from or whether you've, your dad did it six, you know, last generation and your grandfather before that or whatever. What matters is that you know what it tastes like when it tastes good. <laughs> and uh, I, I got that gene. And so, um, so I've managed to, to, to reroute us in a few moments when I was working with people who did not get that, that nose or that sense of smell or that taste of, you know, being able to say, like, I can put it in my mouth and be like, that has heads in it. So I go off next week to judge at the tails of the cocktail spirits comp. And, you know, I can guarantee that I will be tasting a lot of heads in, in the bottled spirits of some of these smaller distilleries, because that's just a really common event. And Was so when that- you're talking about heads, what's the, I mean, just for our listeners, what what is what are the heads of a distillate, and why is that? Why would that potentially be bad? So with rum, it's different from say whiskey or bourbon or rye or scotch or anything. You know, even grain neutral spirits or vodka, whatever. Um, so with rum, you don't get methanol so much in your heads, but most heads of most spirits have methanol. So ethanol is what we're going for. We want ethanol. Ethanol is the good stuff. When you get methanol, um, it's not only horribly poisonous to the human body, so really not a great thing to to have go into your uh, spirit, but also it's, um, gosh, it just tastes like fusel alcohols, like you just took a big sip off of the jet engine of an airplane or something. Um, And also, you know, I find like with rum, we don't get methanol, so it's different types of ethanols that are, um, those are the ones that boil off first. So they leave the still first. And, um, and those just generally, like I describe it as if you had a baking accident in your kitchen, you know, and so you were making something and you really overcooked it, but you also like maybe cooked it in the wrong kind of pan or something. And so you, it's very bitter and it's very, um, just tastes like your first reaction is, oh, okay, I wouldn't want to eat that. But to me, a baking accident takes a, tastes a heck of a lot better than you know the fusel alcohols of a plane. So it just depends on um, on which type of spirits you're tasting. Um, rum, it's a it's a little lo- lower stakes, I guess I would say. But still, like heads and tails of rum, they just 
that's where you get those rums that people identify as just not being very clean or not tasting very good or being rough. Um, they usually have heads and that's, it's a pretty much like nine out of 10. They've got, they've let some heads cross over into the center of the batch, which is what we're capturing and putting into the barrel. Did that you, help? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No. And I, and I think sometimes we do have to, you know, we're guilty of it all the time. Like we get a little too inside our baseball and then, so we'll use yeah. like these different terms and then I'll get a text from um, a friend of mine, Maggie, shout out to you. You're the best. She'd be like, what does that mean? And I'm like, Oh, all right. We got to do that better. So uh, well, no, that was, was great. I was tempted to say things like congeners and esters and, you know, things that are just double down on it. I'm just going to, I'm just going to leave that to the, to the geeks. Go look up congeners and esters in rum and you'll get a lot more good information about how you can really make, make or break a spirit with those. Did, have you found that you've been um, successful in training your, your help uh, in, in the art of distillation or is it something that you find that really um, at least for you for tasting good really comes down to sort of the, the biological gifts? No, I mean, I think you can really train people like to me, what makes a good distiller and a good, you know, person running a, a proofing operation or preparing fermentations or preparing for a bottling what it really is, is just incredible commitment to um, the details. So not no shortcuts, no, oh gosh, I got on my phone and I forgot to take a measurement um, at that particular time. So we're constantly during distillation measuring alcohol by volume and measuring temperature and um but the real, but the real artful distillers, I think, are the ones who combine those characteristics with also the ability to taste constantly. Just you know, a little drop on the finger, and um, just to to get all of the various different elements that are coming through the still, and to say yes, this is really good, or like oh geez, we're starting to transition now. We need to capture these separately so we don't end up with something in the wrong place. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think there, there are artful distillers and there are scientific distillers. And I tend to like to train my crew to be artful distillers um, because otherwise uh, the Montagna rum just ends up tasting a little bit. It could taste a little bit bland if you were too conservative. No, that totally makes sense. And I think it's, um, you know, for, for Chris and I, we've, I think we find ourselves always like gravitating more towards uh, distilleries that have more women involved because as Chris kind of briefly pointed out, like biologically you just have the edge, you know, you, you have a bigger, um, you know, not only color palette, but you know, flavor profile palette and stuff. And it's just kind of like, it's like, yeah, like that's why some of the most successful people, you know, in this distillery and blenders and stuff like tend to be women. He says, yeah, they taste they taste better than men do, you know, and we do taste good, don't we? (laughs) Yeah. 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 Uh, Yeah, That's it. That's it. Yep. I knew what you meant. (laughs) Um, Well, but that's, that's been one of the coolest things for me is like Trudy Ann Branker and um, you know, these uh, 
well, obviously Joyce Spence, which who, you know, is the, the queen of all master blending in the rum world. But, you know, these are people, some of them have worked in this business for 20, 25, 30, 35 years, um, but they didn't get much visibility because um, it was so rare it's for women to be working in these companies. So that's one of the things that I have really committed myself to is like, bringing up and sharing the stories of women in the business who've many of them have been doing it for a long time with no recognition uh, because then you 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 know you start a little thinking process on the part of an aspiring person in the industry like I could do that like if you don't ever see anybody doing it that's of your gender or you know uh, of your your race or ethnicity or whatever it gets harder and harder to imagine yourself doing it so I like to I like to put, put a lot of visibility around that. That's why I started the Women's Distillery Guild. And we have, um, you know, I'm going to the American Craft Spirits Association conference next week and talking with women about um, the, Ameri- the Women's Distillery Guild and all of the work that we're doing to train women at WSET and just, you know, generally talk more about sexual harassment in this workplace. And anyway, that's a whole other podcast topic right there. <laughs> Well, we'll do a follow-up. I do want to share one thing because, you know, kind of bringing up highlighting stuff. Let me grab it real quick. Drew is headed to his uh, massive wall of booze, most likely. So, uh, so obviously <laughs> great, great content of me just running away from the conversation. <laughs> but um, oh, his book. Uh, same, same. so the book, so the Rum, Rum Rebels, uh, which is a celebration of women revolutionizing the spirits industry with cocktail recipes. Uh, you're in this, right? Yes. You know? There's a whole chapter. I was pretty it, honored. It was, uh, <laughs> it's, it's so cool because, you know, as, as you go through this, like, you know, Joy Spence is in here and then, um, the, uh, Lorena Vasquez is in here as well, which you had, you had mentioned earlier. And of course you're in here too. And this is just a really cool book. And this was one that I actually recommended on our Dope follows a while back. And, it just it is cool to see so many different things and and I also what I love about it is because uh, it gives like a lot of background as well so you just see all these different women coming from all these different places and and I know that you know part of what you're doing is like kind of moving the conversation like hey I'm not just unique because I'm a woman in this industry you know like I do have talent and stuff like that which is what made that conversation at Rum Congress so good. Um, but, you know, to your point, it's like, hey, we can, you can come from all these different backgrounds. You can be involved in all these different ways. Uh, I mean, like I just opened up to like the Marian Pacheco part, which everybody knows. Oh, she's how, so how, cool. Yeah, how obsessed I personally am with Miriam. And, um, you know, she's with uh, the Urapin Charanda. And uh, she's just the greatest. And you guys got to be on that panel together. And it was and it was so fun. And, you know, I'm before we started, she was so nervous. Oh my gosh. I was dying because she's like, you know, know. it's not her first language uh, English. And she was, and I just was like, I was like, Marion, you, you're going to be fine. Like your English is almost better than mine. So, um, you know, she did a she That was just a really fun thing. And it was cool to see both you guys up there and then to be featured in this book, which is a really, really great read and just a testament to kind of everything that, that you've been talking about. So um, that's going to be an early don't follow again, like go buy, rum rebels it's a it's a dope super super dope book um okay well i think it's now time for our opinion on facts that we've heard from reputable sources 
Okay, so the first one that we want to talk about is actually the most expensive bottle of champagne just sold for $2.5 million. But if you think that's ridiculous and they overpaid, they didn't because they also got five NFTs with it, which are non-fungible tokens that includes digital ownership, which is great, right? Um We've talked about NFTs on this show before. We're still trying to wrap our minds around it. It's kind of a weird place because, uh, you know, all the markets are down. Cryptocurrency is not doing great. In this article, they actually talk about the purchase and how the NFTs are held in this digital world. But the purchasers of this champagne bottle actually had to buy it in cash, which I just think is so funny. Right. It's like. Listen, this this exists in the Ethereum, but we are going to need real money. So um, go ahead and give us real money. Uh, I wanted to bring this one up because not only is a $2.5 million purchase of a champagne just ridiculous because a lot of it seems to be because of the NFTs involved. They gave an example of this uh, champagne house, you know, puts out like a $16 bottle on the reg. So it's kind of like, okay, how, where are we filling in the gaps here? But, you know, Care from your perspective and how you know innovative and and different like you've taken approaches and you know starting an American rum distillery in the Rockies. Like when you look at stuff like this, I mean, is there an NFT future for Montano rum? Like, do you see this ever becoming a thing, or is it already a thing? Because maybe it already is. I don't know. What do you think? <clears throat> well, gosh, I think I have so many thoughts on this. I don't even know where to start. But the first one is, no, we haven't done an NFT rum yet. But I I, I think about it. And I, know, I kind of know how I would do it. And um, I think it's it's imminent in the future. You know, really, the goal is to make something one of a kind that would never be duplicated. Um, so, you know, in, in a weird way, it's comparable to the barrel program that you did at your place where... Um, you know, it's it was the first overproof we had ever done for commercial purchase. And, you know, that was more bottles. But I could really imagine making a single bottle that is absolutely unique of Montagna rum. And how do you get that out to the world other than something like an NFT kind of system, which I, I love that. And I love that it will forever be connected to me and my distillery and 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 my, you know, choices as a as a company or as an owner, um, I think that's I think that's incredibly cool. So philosophically, I really love the concept. With this bottle of champagne, I think it comes more down to um, the fact that we're that money is just it's just incomprehensible. So if you are like me, where you you are in the trench, literally scrabbling for every dollar that you have to do what the work that you're trying to do. And inflation and, you know, worker shortages and COVID and, you know, I mean, it's just like an endless stream of, of challenges. Um, then I value money really differently. But if you're someone for whom you kind of primed that pump a long time ago and all of a sudden the money is just flowing out of the pump and you're like looking for interesting, cool ways to spend it. And maybe you like the spotlight and you like to kind of get attention to what you do. Um, that just makes sense to me that for that person who bought a two and a half million dollar bottle of champagne, two and a half million dollars was their pocket jingle. That was like their, their play money. Um, and so, 
yes, it's the highest that we've ever seen. And yes, it, you know, I think that the NFT component is to keep it connected back to the, to the, um, Vintner, I guess would be the right word that made it in, in the Champagne region of France. And, you know, ideally keep some connection to the maker, like the art does in the NFT world and, and all of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just think it, we shouldn't be surprised. People are printing money in different ways right now out there in the world. Um, and everything's more expensive and everybody's making more money off the things that they make, uh, for the most part. And so that's kind of how I see it is it shouldn't be that surprising to us. Yeah. So I've, so got, the, a, I've got, I've got like a, a, another way to think about this. Um, these guys in, in this article that we're uh, referencing said specifically that they don't imagine they will ever drink that. Open it. Right. Right. As a producer, if you were to produce something like that, that was so truly unique, how, how would you feel uh, I guess on a personal level, if you knew that like this extra unique rum that you had made uh, was out there in the world that no one was ever going to taste and they were just going to trade over and over again for money. That's a great question. Oh my God. I love <laughs> this question so question. much. Especially because I have to tell you a story, a quick story from Berlin at Berlin bar convent this year. Um, so you know, my funny story about my origins with rum goes back to India. I had my first sip of an aged rum on a beach in Goa, India. Um, it was old monk rum, which you may or may not have ever come across. But I sell it in California. So yes. I, it's like <laughs> deeply ingrained in my life experience of rum. And of course I get just infinitely teased by people because they're like old monk oh my god that's not good rum whatever it goes back to who gives a crap who gets to decide what your good rum is but um but i was sitting there and in this bar which had just walls and walls of um these incredible bottles of rum that had um they were you know they were there um never opened many of them, you could pay a lot of money to have them bring one down and crack it open for you. Um, but that, I love that. Like, I think that is super cool to, to have some historic element. Like this one bottle is extra prized. It's going to sit on that shelf until someone determines that the value of drinking and the experience of drinking the liquid outweighs the resale value or the, you know, whatever's on your balance sheet that you want to claim or whatever um, experience you might have of what's what you value. But for me, there's some tipping point at which it's going to be more interesting to be sitting with a cool group of people and open a bottle and, and pour a sip so that everybody can understand what you mean when you say this is something special. And so that's what happened that night in that bar was I was like, you all who are sitting with me, you know, it was like a heavy hitting group of people in the industry, Elaine Duff and um, her husband were both there. And um, so we opened, we cracked open that bottle of Old Monk and poured some around. And I, I was just having like a panic attack that I had been the one to crack open this <laughs> bottle because I didn't totally know what I was getting myself into. But, you know, that was the tipping point. It was like either up on the shelf that you could look at or you could pull it down with an amazing group of people and say, this is this was my original inspiration and why I've been a rum distiller for 14 years now. I think that's I think that's awesome. I, I know for myself, 
and I, and this is kind of a trend I think that has started since bars have started to open up again. And anytime I go into a place, if I see a sealed bottle, I'm probably ordering that, you know, like I want things to be opened up. And and what I found is that when you do that, it's kind of like the bottle service effect, you know, <laughs> like someone's someone at the other, you know, other in the bar is like, Oh, that's being opened up. Like, what is this? Like, why did that person seek that out? You know, uh, it happened yesterday when I was at a bar, it happened two weeks ago when I was in, uh, when I was in Napa, um, you know, kind of the, the same kind of mentality. And, and I love it. I mean, and it, and it, we used to have a segment on this show that we would talk about, you know, auction bottles and what they would go for. And if it was, and the, the final question was always, you know, do you open it or do you resell it? And, Mm -hmm. and I feel like for Chris and I, unless it was like a bourbon, we pretty much were always like, we're going to open it, you know, and we're going to get together like 10 friends and we're going to drink it together. Cause I, I do feel like all my favorite drinking memories, of course, there is the element of the alcohol involved, but it was really the people who I was drinking with, you know, Mm -hmm. and, you know, to kind of create that thing. I mean, I, I have a soft spot in my heart for old monk as well. And, you know, the Rome world can be unforgiving when it comes to these enthusiasts and what their opinions are. And if you don't fall in line, like, you know, they can be real shitty about it. So I'm happy to hear that you have some, uh, you know, some skeletons in your closet too, in terms of your things that you like, it makes me feel like, and I, but I also, I mean, I, I also think that just based off my like actual in-person interactions with you, like it totally makes sense. I mean, my experiences in at like rum Congress and rum fest and places like that, it's like there can get, they can get a little clicky and people kind of gravitate towards the same ones. And it's kind of like you're, if you're not in the club, so you can say hi to us, but that's really kind of it. Um, but like when I first met you, like you were just like, Oh my God, it's you. And like, you gave me a hug and I just was like, this is the coolest thing ever. I can't believe that, you know, this person I think is totally rad, like thinks I'm okay. Like this is awesome. So, uh, it makes sense that you would be an old monk as well. Cause if you, if you can drink old monk, then you can definitely hang with anybody. You know, you've got one well, in your corner, Drew. Just one. Yeah. <laughs> One yes. of the first people I met in the business was Ian Burrell, who's the you know UK rum ambassador. He's now the founder of Equiano Rum, which is a beautiful rum in collaboration with Foursquare. And you know, I just will never forget. Like we had a conversation, and I said, "What's your favorite rum?" and and he said, "You know, the one that's in my hand." Um, yeah. And that really stuck with me. Whether he believes it or not anymore, I guess I have no idea. But um, as the whole category has premiumized and, you know, everybody talks more about the, the types of rum that are really exceptional in the, in the industry, um, there has become this kind of clickishness. And if you're not saying the right thing, then there's just this collective sort of like, ugh. And if I had, if I had started there, um, I never would have started a rum distillery. I've had to you know, I've had to break down so many paradigms and so many barriers, like the, um, you know, the fact that I make it in Colorado, the fact that I make it in America, the fact that I make it with American grown sugarcane and that I don't do it from 100% molasses, like many of my colleagues in the Caribbean. And I mean, I could go on for days um, about the ways in which I've 
kind of veered off the norm. And so I've just never had the luxury of being able to be snobby about any of this because um, I'm always the one who's like trying to get people to forgive me for the thing that I do that's not quite, um, it, you know, there's no GI in, in the mountains of Colorado that I have to follow or even advocate for. So. Oh my gosh, this, we're going to try not to touch the GI conversation yeah, because yeah, that's, that's a, just that's way too dark triggering. Hole. For our listeners, that's a geographical index which dictates how you would make certain things in certain areas. And boy, there are some hard, hard and steadfast opinions on those when it comes to different countries. So, uh, but I think that that actually leads us to a great transition to our to our next article. Yo. So, you know, we went back to the well, we went to Vine Pear, one of our favorite sources, because they're just always talking about things that we want to talk about. And in this article, it basically lays out rum, where it's at right now. Is it at a point, can it make the transition from being that beach drink to something that is premium and the sipper? And then what have been the factors playing into it? You know, what, is it a marketing issue? Um, you know, is it is it a quality issue? All these different factors playing in. I don't necessarily think that we need to break down the article, but just using it more of as an umbrella topic um, for what we've pretty much been talking about this entire hour already, which has been, you know, taking this product that is more popular across an ocean than it is, you know, to, to your neighbors and stuff. So, so Karen, I want to start with you. What do you see as like, what's been some of the problems in terms of changing the perception of rum? from from your from an ownership position like like what are some of the obstacles that you run into when you talk about oh i make rum you know i think one of the biggest ones is that people have always thought that rum was the um you know kind of the the blue collar spirit um it was the the thing you went to if you didn't if you weren't really discerning that's kind of how i came into the rum world was people just saying Oh, so if you're into rum, then you must not actually be that discerning. Because if you were discerning, you would be into whiskey or scotch or or whatever. And it took me such a long time to convince people that you could be discerning. Even 25 years ago, you could be incredibly discerning about rum and find rums that were made just as well or better, aged just as long or longer, made from just as beautiful origin ingredients as anything, anything out there. Um, And that the only reason people were making those associations with non-discernment was because they'd never found the good ones. They didn't know. And, And 25 years ago, you couldn't get them. You know, you couldn't walk down to your beautiful local liquor store and pick up three different bottles that represented, you know, like a worthy park or a um, long pond or, you know, whatever, and, and understand what represented the most beautiful spirits in the category. Um, Now that's completely changed. And so that was a big thing hurdle that I had to be part of, but also just be a beneficiary of um, the, the ways in which people are starting to understand that there's nothing, there's crappy whiskey, there's crappy bourbon, you know, like there's, you can get crap in every single category. Um, so it takes some effort and some energy and some collaboration to find really the top end. Um, 
So I feel like we've, we've really come through that much more now. People used to, the other thing I really have been irritated by was people were always like, rum is the next big thing. And I've been hearing that for like a uh-huh. decade. They even uh-huh. touch on that in this article too. Like they uh-huh. said it and I just was like, I was like, I'm sorry, sweetheart. This is not it. Like, it's just it's like, <laughs> we've, we've been here. We've been on this boat. It's not, it's not happening. Okay. Like we're, we're going to keep drinking it. We're going to keep trying, but it's, it's not it. So, but yeah, I'm sorry. Well, Go ahead. And, but interestingly, so I was in London during um, London cocktail week one year when um, this gorgeous, gorgeous bar called, 22 Colebrook Road or something like that. I can't remember the exact name, but um, it they won <clears throat> Best Bar in London. And I was sitting in the bar because I didn't go to the big award ceremony, but you could watch it on TV. So we were watching it on TV in the bar and the owner of the bar, you should have seen his face when they announced that he, 21 Colebrook Row, that's what it's called when his bar had won best bar in London, he was devastated. He was just like, Oh God. And, and then within two hours, the bar was full of yahoos. Like, and he had all this gorgeous crystal glassware, like all the most beautiful, he must've gone around and gotten them at, at antique shops and whatever. And, you know, he's just handing these cocktails over in these beautiful glasses to these people who've just stormed over because they're like, we're going to be part of the next big thing. We're going to be at the front lines of knowing what's cool. And glasses were getting broken and the space was overwhelmed. And it was, it completely ruined the vibe um, of this gorgeous bar. And that's kind of how I feel about rum being the next big thing. I'm like, because then it's going to be like everybody's going to flood in and suddenly have an opinion about rum and want to tell us what good rum is. And nobody's going to recognize that, like, I don't care, you know, like pick <laughs> up a good glass and and sip it and tell me what you're tasting and how much finish you're getting. And um, so I'm I really feel strongly that I almost don't want rum to be the next big thing. Some of my colleagues will you know, have apoplexy when they hear me say that out loud, but I love what rum is, which is like this cool secret society of amazing people who really understand that it's the most diverse spirit. So like the communities from the Caribbean and from, you know, like the ways in which this rum is being made and, you know, you don't find that kind of dynamism in the whiskey world. Sorry. Um, it's just not there. The music, like the, the incredible Jamaican dance hall and like these dance parties that I get to go to when I'm traveling for rum, I'm like, this does not happen in the Scotch world. I'm just going to say. And, um, you know, so I love rum with what it's doing I know that I'd love to sell more rum. I know many of us in the business would love to sell more rum, but not because it became the next big thing, just because we succeeded in reaching people to understand how spectacular it is as a spirit. I think that's a I think that's a great way to put it. I mean, one of the one of the byproducts also of you know becoming the next big thing is that prices increase, you know, and you see that mm-hmm. happen with tequila right now. There was a bottle of the Fortaleza Winners Blend that I grabbed off the shelf the other day 
took it to the front. And I was at a retailer that was for historically speaking, a very fair retailer, you know, typically normal margins and markups and stuff like that. I just like, I was like, Oh, it's kind of cool that this is still here. I'm going to pick it up. And then the guy at the cash register is like, goes, Oh, that can't be right. And I was like, what is it? He's like, Oh, this bottle's $300. Oh my God. And I was like, $300 for a reposado tequila. Like, are we, being serious right now um and i know for a fact because former guest and fortaleza ambassador you know christina was was on here like that bottle should msrp for for 150 you know and i understand like it's a popular thing it's a rare item but it's just kind of like you see that happen you're kind of like oh god and and i always think about um you know foursquare when i think about rum's popularity and stuff like that and i remember a couple years ago and even though i don't have the same relationship that i had with him back then but um richard seal who's the master stiller came out was talking about losing distribution in it was either a country or maybe somewhere he had lost distribution and people were mortified right they're like how can how can this thing happen it's like there's just a lot there's a huge portion of the population that's not going to drink rum it's just it's harder for them to overcome this stuff and it this is a business and then you know then what you saw was people trying to turn foursquare into what they would call the pappy van winkle of rum right like you saw those articles all the time i still see those articles and it and it drives me nuts right and so what has happened um and also because the stocks are getting older and people are buying them but like i see more foursquare sitting than i've ever seen before because those price points are 80, 90, a hundred dollars, which I think is totally fair for these rums. I, I, I don't, I don't think they're being egregious when, when they do this, but you know, a lot of rum enthusiasts kind of got what they wanted, what they asked for. And then they didn't turn around and really kind of support it. They're like, well, now it's $90. Like I should be getting this for 60. It's like, no, that's not how this works. So this is really weird, you know, dynamic that exists in, I mean, in any enthusiast you know, category. We see that. We see that all the time at the shop. You know, I mean, you know, you and I had uh, a lot of conversations, Drew, before we even got open about really wanting to support the rum community in, in Sacramento. And we brought in some really spectacular rum stuff. That's like really special. And some of it's still sitting there from the day we opened because it turns out rum enthusiasts really, really, really like inexpensive rum. Yeah, they they really, really, really don't want well, to spend money. I'm included in that. I will never forget, you know, the first bottle of Foursquare Zinfandel cask aged rum that I bought in Denver out of a glass case for $54.99. And I thought that was the most I maybe had ever spent on a, you know, on a bottle of rum in my life. And you can't get that one anymore. Um I mean, I think there's some inkling that it might come back around, but um, it was one of the best rums I've ever tasted in my life, and I loved it so much. Um, but fifty four ninety nine sounded like a colossal amount of money to pay for a bottle of rum, and now I'm I routinely see rums that I love on the shelf for for seventy five, eighty, ninety dollars as their base price, not just the special one, but the normal mm-hmm. ones, and. And I mean, I think the price of something is what people will pay for it. Totally. So if Absolutely. that Fortaleza, if that Fortaleza is sitting on the shelf and people are grabbing it at three hundred bucks a, a go, then that's the price of Fortaleza, and that's as it should be. Um, but like you said, if you put it on the 
shelf and it sits there and gets dusty and you're constantly having to dust it off and, and, you know, move it around and, and try to take the, the old out of date shelf talker off of it or whatever. Um, it doesn't, then obviously whatever price they chose was not the price of that rum. You know, yeah, and somebody's got to reevaluate. I think that in, in, I think it's what I, what I took away from the situation is, is that there's so many spirits in this world and, there's just so much alcohol in this world. Like I know for myself, like I'm trying to learn as much as I can about wine right now. And it's just kicking my ass. Like I just, I don't feel like rum was this hard. I didn't feel like whiskey or, or agave was this hard. Now, when I think back, I'm like, Oh yeah, well I had 10 years of learning. Like I feel like I'm crash course on wine right now. And it's, you know, it's not just happening. Um, <laughs> but you know, when you, when you see these things and you do have these enthusiast group, like what, what bums me out is that you have distributors who are going in and they're telling these retailers, it's like, oh, this is limited edition. We can't get it anymore. And so the natural reaction from any retailer is going to be like, oh, well, I should hike up the price on this, you know? But the reality is, is that those people who, because aged tequila really has blown up, but they're buying things like Añejos and extra Añejos, right? And they're buying these severely adulterated tequilas because they taste sweet, right? And they're easy to drink. Like, I love Fortaleza. It is not for everybody. I don't care what mm. anybody says. It is not for everybody. Um, and it really does appeal to an enthusiast group. And when you have these enthusiast groups that kind of know what things should cost – you know, that will sit there. And then like into the layman who doesn't, you know, know as much kind of like, well, I mean, the Anejo is the, is the oldest one, right? Which is, you know, I think pretty standard if you get into tequila stuff, like they see Reposado for $300. Like, well, why does it taste like that? And then if they do have the money to buy it and pull the trigger and it ends up being a profile, that's a little bit more aggressive than what they were expecting compared to something like a Clase Azul or a 1942 or something like that. I think it's like, it just does damage to the, to the overall category. Right. right. And, and that's what, you know, I start to get a little worried about and, you know, and I mean, and again, to kind of bring it back to rum where you do have your soldiers for four square rum who are just kind of like four square or die. Like these are the only things that you can drink. Like these, are the one that's doing it the best is kind of like, like, hey, that rum's not for everybody. And In the entire ministry of rum uh, chat room. <laughs> Listen, I oh. I don't need those people on my case anymore. Um, <laughs> but it's you know it it's just like one of those things that there's so many like varying profiles and stuff. And I just I I'm wondering it's like hey if you if you're pushing these things and then they become more and more expensive because it's the pappy of this, it's the pappy of that. And then when you bring in your language, kind of like I just paid 150 dollars for this and it's like not blowing my mind. Yeah, yeah. no kidding. It took me so long to figure out what types of rum I loved, you know, like I I knew that I didn't love them all. Yeah. But I thought for a long time, it was the ones that were over sweetened with sugar, you know, which was why I started 14 years ago to make a no sugar added rum long before that was even the big chatter of the industry. But it took me a really long time to realize that I don't love the, the rums that I, that I like, but don't love are made from hundred percent molasses. Um, and they're, it's just because there's a sulfur element that's in the fermentation that carries across the still into the final spirit. And you either 
worship that flavor and you love that more than anything. Or in my case, I'm like, meh, I like it when it's the full the full spectrum of the sugarcane plant, you know, everything that comes out. So I'm a huge fan of those rum agricoles and some of those aged agricoles from the French islands. And, you know, I, I just learned in Central and South American rum is pretty much by and large, not, you know, not reliably made from hundred percent molasses. And that's where I've found some of the rums that I love the most. And like, I went down to Colombia about three years ago and, wow, is there some cool, small craft rum distilling going on in like, you know, the, the foothills of the, the mountains in Colombia. Um, I, I think there's, that's going to become a new booming, exciting area of rum someday. I, I feel like we're just like the same palette. I'm like so excited that you like the things that I like. Um, but, and, and I think also, you know, your, your palate changes, right. Mm. And you're going to be craving different things. Like I know uh, same mindset. Like I'm finding really being into, you know, and I like Spanish style, you know, more of like this, Mm -hmm. like lighter profile rums. And then, but I also like, I'm really enjoying blends because I think I've just drank so much rum over my life that it's kind of cool to pick different, different things out. And it's, it's fun to progress at different stuff and try different things. But like, I'm very, I'm very bullish on Central and South America right now. I just think there's so much fun stuff happening. So much good stuff. And I, you know, I've, there there are so many things to talk about in terms of the palette of rum. But when I first started out in the business, I could not hack, you know, some of those high ester rums. I just didn't love like the Jamaican rum bar, rum fire. They weren't, those, those rums weren't around then, but they, as they kind of came into the marketplace and became kind of the talk of the town, I was like, Oh my God, you know, I just, I couldn't do it. And then of course I drank them more and more and more because you do. And, um, and I got it. Like at some point my palate just went, Oh, I get it. And then for the last decade or so, I just obsessed with them. Like if I'm, you know, a lot of times if I'm having a daiquiri and I'm with Zan Kong or someone like that, you know, of, of Worthy Park, like I want to have a really high ester Jamaican rum in my daiquiri, you know, and that I, someone would say, you shouldn't say that you should be just promoting your own Platino, which makes a really good daiquiri, but, Agreed. um, <laughs> but I just love those esters, those those sea level Caribbean esters that come sometimes out of dunder pit fermentation. And, you know, they're so interesting and complex and they're usually high, high tests. So I have to be careful if I'm going to have one, I'm only get, get to have one daiquiri with the, um, with the Jamaican funk in it. Cause it's usually a hundred or higher, but yeah, I mean, I've like you said, your palate changes, and so that's what I've tried repeatedly on those online forums, like the Ministry of Rum, and um, to really just say over and over again, it's like I guarantee that when you started being an expert in this field, that you didn't love the same rums that you love now. Give these people 100%. who are ent- entering a chance to cultivate their palate toward greater sophistication. But if today they say they tasted Zaya and love it. Like do not throw them under the bus because they're going to leave the rum world and never come back. They're going to run screaming to, you know, tequila or mezcal or whatever, where 
they're going to get a nicer um, entree. So I've been really trying. And actually, Richard Seal came to my, def- you know, not to my defense, but sort of joined me on a in a conversation not that not too long ago where he's like, Karen's right, you know, like, stop this. So that was pretty cool. Uh, you know, like, I, it's, we, he, he started the fire and then he's like, look at me, I'm helping put it out. You're just kind of like, really, bro? Really? Like, should we be applauding yeah. you? Okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to stop now because I'm going to. Uh, I'd like to point out that uh, Karen did something uh, that I think flew under the radar in uh, the last uh, monologue she just had there uh, that Drew and I have in in the quiet without microphones oftentimes yelled at each other, yelled with each other, cried with each other, laughed with each other about, and that is you uh, were able to remove yourself from your own brand and talk about just enjoying something else. And Mm. Drew and I absolutely despise when people can't turn it off. You can't just sit back and go, you know what else I like other than my own shit? is these other things also because that helps me enjoy my my stuff also and the fact that right. you did that so so easily in uh in in saying what you like in your daiquiri as well as your own stuff but also like saying like when i get a chance i'm also doing this uh is huge for us and completely that absolutely endeared you to me forever just Aww, doing that thank you. no I, I i totally i totally agree i mean i i one of my favorite things to ask any ambassador is like hey when you're not drinking your own stuff like what do you like and they and, always go come on bro don't make me say that oh my gosh <laughs> yeah and and the thing is is that i think when you're able to enjoy such a diverse you know range of different products and stuff is it leads and lends to your authenticity as a true like rum producer, enjoyer, enthusiast, whatever the case may be. Like one of my favorite things is that if I share something on my social media, uh, I when someone reaches like, oh, are you selling that now? It's like, no, I'm not. I just think this stuff is rad, and I want people, really cool. I want people to drink it. Um, and that's kind of like my. I, there was this weird opportunity I had a couple months ago where someone was like, like, Hey, you've been nominated to, to get into this uh, like top rum ambassador thing. Like what brands do you work for? And I was like, I don't, I, I represent these ones. I talk about these ones and stuff. And then I got disqualified from the competition because I wasn't an actual ambassador. So <laughs> I'm pretty still bitter about it, but it's like, you know, it was so ridiculous to me. And so like now what you'll see if I ever talk about rum, it's like I always hashtag it, not a rum ambassador now. So <laughs> when you guys see that, you're now part of the inside joke that I have with myself. But I but I do think it's... Well, imp- it's- oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I just think it's important to, you know, to because things are so different. Like even even if you look at Jamaica and like you brought up Zan um, with Worthy Park, which I, I love Zan. He's one of my favorite people. You know, what they do with their style of Jamaican rum is completely different than what Hamden does. Right. And it's like, you're mm-hmm. talking about this relatively small Island that has a very, very distinct flavor profile that a lot of people associate with it. And Worthy parks over here, like, yeah, we don't do Dunder. <laughs> you know, and you're kind of like, like, Whoa, 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 Whoa. I thought every, I did like, no, 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 we don't do it. And you're just kind of like, you're like, Oh wow. Like that's how diverse this can be. And you can enjoy it in so many different ways. And it's just, I don't know. I, I love it. And it's kind of like, why not, take advantage of the fact that we have this so many various 
flavor profiles that you can enjoy from so many different parts of the world. Like it's super fun. Well, and how would I know that Montagna rum was, was decent? How would I know that I could be proud of it and, you know, take it into a tasting and pour it for people and know that it was good if I wasn't constantly tasting other things and understanding what's, you know, what, what's getting excitement in other parts of the industry and what are people, you know, what are people chattering about and where does Montagna fit? You know, and I think it's been one of the really fun things in the UK for me is that it's such a sophisticated consumer group. So when I go over there and, and sit in a small room with these high level people who've come out for a small event with me and to talk about rum, like I want to, I want to hear from them and know what they're tasting. And, and if I'm just sort of blinders on, like, it's good, it's good, it's good. I swear it's good. No matter what you say, <laughs> you know, <laughs> then it's, that's problematic. Um, so I feel like it's, it's my responsibility to be a person of the rum world. Um, because otherwise, I won't know if Montagna rum is any good coming out out of my door. Absolutely. Well, I think the the lesson here is drink more rum, all the rum. <laughs> Although as I get older, I'm like I'm more picky and I'm drinking a little less. But I I find that I, you know, I just the the better choices I make about what to drink, the better I feel. So. A little premium, uh, buying a little nicer bottle goes a long way for my my well-being. 100% on board with that. You know we were, who's we were, dope? Them over there. We we were talking about that earlier. We just don't want to drop these, these sound bites anymore. Um, but yeah, like buying nicer stuff because it does make you feel better tomorrow is, is a big part of my motivation at this point. But also part of my motivation is is celebrating my favorite part of the show, which is the dope follow section. We're going to tell you who you should be following. It could be a podcast in addition to this one, books, Instagram accounts, movies, TV shows, whatever. Karen, I know you have a lot of dope <laughs> follows for us and you're giving them all to us. We're going to count them off because oh, you mentioned how know. many are there. Okay. So Karen, who are your dope follows? Who do people need to be checking out? It's so hard to pick. How do people even pick? Because I have so many favorites out there. But I will say that one, the top of my list right now is um, if you haven't yet come across Evard Delat, um, he's a blogger from uh, Canada and he has a blog called Rum Revelations. Um, I think it's amazing. He he went deep, really deep with me about sugarcane um, in one blog post, and he just goes deep um, on the in like the sort of geeky and intellectual side of rum. So if anybody out there is trying to become more educated about the spirit, that's a big one. Okay. Um, and I think one of the other things that I've been just loving so much lately is, do you guys have you heard of David Attenborough? Yeah. David Attenborough. So he has a Facebook, um, which is called fans of David Attenborough. Um, but then he's got, you know, quite a few different presences online, but, um, this has nothing to do with rum, of course. Perfect. Um, Perfect. It's totally okay. <laughs> I've tried to really craft my social feeds so that I don't get depressed every morning when I look at, you know, when I look at them. And so um, he, he just has these great 
birds and and flowers and interesting things from the natural world that I've never seen before. And I'm 50, I'll be 54 next month. And I've never seen half of these species or, you know, the other day it was a it was a kind of orchid that looks like the male. Um, it looks like a man with uh, interesting anatomy. We'll just put it that way. Um, <laughs> so I highly recommend David Attenborough. Um, and you know, when I when I read about things in general, I am an I'm obsessed with The Economist. So that's that'll be my last one. I know okay. I have more, but so. I learned, I've learned a long time ago that it's really good to look at America from a different lens sometimes where our media has become so partisan that, um, so The Economist is where I start my day, um, The World in Brief, which is their daily morning email. And that's where I get very, what I feel is pretty unbiased, interesting news. So that was a, that was a rum suggestion and a natural world suggestion and a, and an uh, news suggestion. Does that work for you? That's perfect. I I love it. These things, I mean, these things are hard to do. I mean, for us, obviously we do them every week so we can kind of spread it out. And, you know, sometimes you forget like, oh yeah, I want to make that one it, but it's always, it's always fun to see the guests struggle with it because you're kind of like, like, oh, I hope someone doesn't listen to this and they're mad that I didn't mention them as a dope follow, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, we're just destroying friendships out here. Um, <laughs> Chris, who's your dope follow? Uh, mine's on Instagram, big surprise, and it's uh, Mid Mod Sacramento. It's uh, I I don't know if I I've used them before, um, but I really really enjoy this uh, this account. It's uh, someone they gets at they get access to really dope houses, um, mid century modern homes through Sacramento, of which there are many. It's one of the iconic architectural types of uh, features of Sacramento. And they just, they make these really beautiful videos of taking these tours of these, of these really cleaned up, well curated homes. I like it. I don't think you've done that one. I mean, so that's the other thing that happens with us, Karen, is that we'll, we'll like, we'll like retread on ones because like, we still think they're dope and we feel like we need right. to tell more people. They didn't become less dope because <laughs> no. you mentioned them six months ago. Yeah. No. And then, okay. So, so mine is, is an Instagram account as well. Um, and it's tarot wine queen writes. Um, this is one that actually me and Chris have been sharing back and forth over the past couple weeks. And so, uh, she's a writer who does a lot of like consulting for people who like want to write a book and she helps with that. But what she does with this Instagram account is that she shares a lot of um, like book related memes. And so humor. sometimes it'll be, yeah, a lot of humor. And so it'll be like, sometimes it'll be all about like the, like the one that really turned me on to it was she had a series of memes that were all dedicated to the Odyssey and the Odyssey in the Iliad are, are two of my favorite all time pieces of literature. Like I just, I, I read those stories every couple of years and I just, I really love them. And so it really resonated like with me, like the different memes that were tied to it. And then, and then they did, um, she did one a couple of weeks after it was like pride and prejudice. And it was just really, it's really, really funny. So if you're a literature fan at all, or if you are just a book reader, it's, it's really kind of funny. Cause you know, did you see the, did you see the post that she had? I want to say three or four days ago, uh, that was uh, of a home with a with a giant library up in Placerville, which is like yes, right, I did right see down that. the hill from where Drew lives. 
Yeah. Yeah. So it was it a was two point four million dollar home with a giant with a giant library in it. Yeah, I was gonna show it to my wife, and then I was like, I can't do this because then you know my house is gonna turn into <laughs> an entire library. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think I like your wife. I don't know if I've met her yet. <laughs> oh, she she is a uh, I, for lack of a she's a voracious reader. I mean, it 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 blows my mind. Uh, Caitlin, much... Caitlin is damn near perfect, except for not listening to this podcast on a regular basis. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's her one major flaw, <laughs> and the fact that she settled for me. Those are her two things that, like, you know, really set her back. But, uh, but no, she's she's got a um, like she just told me the other day that where we got a bunch of her bunch of her bookcases they finally have them back in stock. I think it's like Ikea or something like that. And she already has, yeah, she already has three or four of them and they're, you know, they're like eight feet tall and she, they're completely full of just all these books. I mean, and you know, so, and she, I mean, again, she is a voracious reader at one point. um, My boss, who's also a pretty avid reader was like, Oh, I want to have a competition with your wife to see who can read the most books this year. And then he immediately started to make excuses of why she was kicking his ass. Um, it was hilarious. Like, Is this well, Robert? Reads, yeah. She's like, yeah. well, she, she reads <laughs> these kind of books. Like I read books that are intellectual. I'm like, shut the, shut up, dude. get out of here. Like, you know, <laughs> uh, so, but, uh, but yeah, so, you know, to bring it, yeah. So the terror wine queen writes is, is, is really good stuff. And then I guess if you do want to write a book, she can help you, but I'm really there for the memes. Uh, <laughs> You know what? Those are those are some pretty dope follows. The music for the Good Bottle Podcast is orchestrated by the Moore Brothers and produced pretty high today by us two guys. And before we go kill these bottles that we have not been drinking today, we ask that if you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram or on Facebook at the Good Bottle Podcast or on our personal accounts. Mine is D Garrison Six. Chris is Kristen Flair. Karen, where can they find you on the interwebs? I am CB Karen H on Instagram and just Karen Hoskin everywhere else. What about Montagna Rum? Where can they find that one? Oh, sorry. Yes, Montagna Rum is <laughs> is Montagna. All one word, Montagna Rum, on Instagram and Twitter, and then Montagna Distillers on Facebook. Ooh, there you go. If you would like for us to cover a story, or if you are working on it with a brand that wants to be featured, please email us at thegoodbottlepodcast at gmail.com. And go check out thegoodbottleshop.com and buy some bottles from Chris. He please really God, needs it. Please. Do it for do. do it for do it for him. Do it for my birthday. My birthday is coming up. Go buy bottles for Chris for yourself for my birthday. Um, for my child, so we should go to daycare. Oh gosh, yeah, she's so cute. I mean, I, she's the best. Um, but until next time, everybody, cheers. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Thank you.